Yes. Welcome to the Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is author Eric Walker. As an amateur genealogist and family historian, Eric was impelled to write his debut novel, Lost Souls Recovered, when he discovered the richness of family stories through research of historical documents and those stories told to him by relatives. As he read historical documents, talked to his relatives, he envisioned a way of life to he envisioned a way to bring to life in fiction form many of his ancestors who lived a hard scrabble life and who worked to overcome hardship. He believes the written word can unlock doors as well as the imagination and unite our spirits through our visions. A lawyer who lives in Ohio, Eric is now working on a second novel involving land loss in the early post-Reconstruction era. In today's conversation, we'll be talking about the importance and the value of understanding the past, our own and that of others. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having me. And I am delighted to be here and can't wait to get started. Well, this is great. You know, I'm so glad you and I had met when we were at Barnes & Noble. Both uh, We were participating in a joint author event. So it it was just, I guess it was just meant to be. It just took me longer than I would have liked to have been able to get you on the show. But um, I am I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, your new novel. So let's start by talking about Lost Souls Recovered. The story is loosely based on your family's past. Now, as you work through the story, were there aspects of that post-Civil War time period that even you didn't know about? Well, yes, uh, for me, there were lots of uh, things that I did not know about, and that was the fun of me working on my debut novel, Lost Souls Recovered. And one of the things that I found uh, about my family and about Black families in particular, and in particular in the American South, was uh, the strength or how strong the Black church was at that time, and still today, it was the Sinoja or the a center of uh, the Black community life. And one of the things I, I learned, um, and I see that today in Black churches, is what is called Watch Night. And uh, it was started after, on the New Year's Eve of 1862, and you can see where I'm going with this probably, on January 1st of 63 of 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So the watch night started on that eve of uh, New Year's Eve of 1862 because there must have been some type of anticipation that Lincoln was going to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. So when you see a Black church, a Black church in particular, even today, so it's carried forward to this day, uh, there is, and I've been to these services, uh, where there is a watch night service on New Year's Eve. It is a recognition. It harkens back to uh, the Civil War days or Okay, definitely in Civil War days where the Blacks and Blacks and their churches were uh, happy and anticipating that they would be free one day. And Lincoln and a proclamation form signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but the actual amendments to the Constitution came later. So, yeah, that's one of the things that I learned. Uh, I don't know why I didn't know it earlier, but that's just one example of what is called Watch Night that is celebrated in the Black community and Black churches today on New Year's Eve. You know, I... Not that I'm not I'm that strong with history to begin with. I had no idea, and I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that place. Okay, that place and that time, and I'm thinking, yes, there's the anticipation, the hope that this might actually happen, but there had to have been a certain amount of fear too, because clearly there was an awful lot of people who didn't want that to happen, and just you know just kind of the the sense of we want it to happen we're hoping it'll happen we're worried about the retaliation we're worried about what they're going to do to us when we become right. free when we become equal okay um but that you know that is um that's interesting and and the business about the church and and it's funny because um, I'm, I'm Slovak-Hungarian. I had mentioned that when you and I were talking before we started this interview. And and the 
the Slovak part of my life was much stronger. My mother's side is, is the Slovak side and her parents came over here from Slovakia. My, my maternal grandfather came before world, right before world war one. And then my grandmother followed after. So they didn't come over together. And my grandmother had my mother who was her first child. She had my mother on the 4th of July, but be that as it may, but, um, the business with the church, okay, that was where I live in in Youngstown, Ohio. You have your you have your defined section. So the Polish people lived in this community, and there would be a Polish church, and the mass would be said in Polish, right? And da 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 da. Same with Italian. Same with all the different nationalities. And it was it was your. Um, your background, your nationality was important. Yes, we're United States citizens, but it was like that was that was integral. Whether whether we're talking about attending a mass in, in Slovak, whether we're talking about eating certain foods, it is that it is that establishment, but it becomes diluted with generations. You know, each generation seems to lose a little bit more of that background history. Do you see that in in your family and among your relatives, you know, when they have children and that, is that something you're seeing that you're concerned about? Well, uh, we're talking about the church and for so many uh, communities uh, of different diverse ethnic backgrounds, the church does uh, it has been for decades you know, and decades to center um, the community's life. But I, I was speaking about the black community and I know definitely it is even to this day, the center of life. But what we're saying of the black communities, black community, but we're, we're, what we are saying today though, is a decline in church population, uh, people attending church as they did years and years ago for a, a number of reasons. So, uh, what I learned and what others uh, before me had learned was based upon what church life was like. So you're definitely seeing a decline in church uh, membership, which may uh, affect the way that people actually want to hang on to something or even realize something. And that's, we'll be able to talk about this later in terms of my second book that I'm writing uh, in the belly of the beast. But what we're also seeing in this country, which is wonderful, we're, we're seeing a number of people, and I'll just use two races as an example, black and white. Uh, it hasn't been that long ago since we had Loving versus Virginia, where the state of Virginia in the 1960s actually had a law, a statute on its books that forbade the intermingling of races by marriage. And so we are seeing a lot of black and white. Again, I'm just picking two races because it can be any other races, but we see uh, a, a proliferation of black and white spouses, therefore uh, having biracial children. And again, this is part of my second book. And with that, though, with the biracial identity uh, becomes a potential problem, which I explore deeply in my book, In the, in the Belly of the Beast. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, were there any challenges or unexpected benefits of writing a book that was based on your family's history? Well, yes. I started taking notes uh, when I was going to family reunions uh, a few decades ago because I wanted to learn about my family. And I think it's important to know, for me to say at least, is as a black man growing up in Ohio, my parents are from the South in Alabama in particular, and I would ask them certain questions. But when I was in high school, as an example, even, and even in college, I did not have a touchstone that so many, or an anchor that so many of my white colleagues or peers, uh, co-equals had at the time. What am I talking about? Well, I remember. Uh, that there in high school, we would have this uh, Oktoberfest, which was meant to celebrate German heritage or uh, Greek festivals or, uh, or Italian festivals. So those are identifiable countries in Europe. So they knew where once they had come and they had some uh, understanding of that, probably being told by the parents and grandparents and forebears and all of that. 
Well, for me, as an African-American, a Black person, I didn't have that anchor or that touchstone. So Europe, uh, for the past several decades, is a round number. There are about 54 countries in Europe. And within that, you have all kinds. You mentioned food, the cuisine, different kinds of foods, different kinds of languages and dialects, different kinds of togs or uh, clothing that you wear. So all of that goes into... Uh, what made me want to dig deeper, because as I said, Europe, if we're going to go with around 54 countries approximately, and that's held for a number, number of years, where if I'm African-American or Black for anyone who has that ancestry, by the way, it's curious that I'm using the word ancestry because and we could talk about this later, even though obviously I'm uh, uh, a Black man, African-American, but because of slavery and what happened was you can take the person like me who's fairly light skin versus a person who's dark skin. And each of us has a percentage of white ancestry in us because of the raping and sort of thing that went on back in, at the time. So for instance, through ancestry, I, I learned that I have a great deal of, I, I wouldn't have known this without taking uh, uh, ancestry tests, but Irish as an example, a great deal of Irish is in my background as well as Scandinavian. I accept it as a science, but I'm just telling you, what DNA ancestry uh, has told me in terms of um, what's in my background. So uh, if you take Africa, now let's compare and contrast that to Africa. Again, uh, the white uh, colleagues or students and, and peers would have an identifiable country, whereas, okay, where can I go back to? King Africa is not a country. It is a continent of approximately 54 countries. And within that, and it's a, a huge continent, and within that, you have same thing in Europe. You have different languages, different peoples, different customs. And, but for me, I did not know where in Africa, uh, as a white person, uh, you don't say, well, I'm from Europe. That means nothing. That's meaningless to anyone. Well, okay, where from Europe? Okay, from a particular, uh, from Germany? Okay, where in Germany? Uh, Westphalia? Because e even within a state or a country, nation state, you have different customs. But I just wanted a touchstone for me to see where in Africa. So I, I know that they say that a lot of slaves, for instance, would have embarked on from the Western Africa. So even within that, I, I did not know. So I set out, Nancy, to do something that I thought I could do following in the footsteps of Alex Haley. And what he did when he wrote Roots, although it's fiction, he had found a slave manifest. And that's how he was able to find out that Kuta Kenta, again, it's fiction, but he said that Kunta Kente, who later became Toby, had hailed from one of the Western states, I can't think of one Western countries um, of Africa, I should say, the continent of Africa. So I, in my research, said, I'm going to find that slave manifest to see if I can find a name that I can then trace back to a region of Africa. Well, I hit a brick wall. I, I could not find that. I could not do that. So what I and the reason I could not do that in part, and some people have done that, it's very rare, but some people have done that. Uh, as you may know, and your viewers or listeners may know, uh, let's go back to the Constitution of the United States. And 18, prior to 1870, well, first of all, the Constitution requires an enumeration that there be a census once every 10 years. So in 1870 was the first time that Blacks were actually counted as people because you had the Reconstruction Amendments passed by that time, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But prior to that, uh, the way that you could possibly find a Black person on in the census was if they were they were chattel, but they would be referred to often by a nickname, certainly not a full name, a first name, and a last name. So when I got a hold of the 1870 census, it was like magic. My whole world in terms of what I've been trying to achieve had opened up for me. And I saw a lot of my ancestors on the 1870 uh, census. And from there, I began to uh, figure out how I can bring their life to uh, in fiction form. So while I never can say which part of Africa I'm from uh, as easily as a white person could say, I mean, like ancestry, for instance, does say, I think a certain amount of from Nigeria or um, uh, uh, whatever, whatever country it is. Uh, but what does that mean to me? Because if you, a lot of my white friends, for instance, they can, they know exactly where they're from. I'm only being told this on ancestry, but I really don't have a, a connection because not a, I, I was never taught and perhaps I, there was no reason. Uh, 
I was never taught and did not learn what part of Africa my ancestors had come from. That just didn't happen. So I was going to uh, invent my own story. And by talking to people about what they remember uh, growing up in the South. Mm -hmm. That's, that's incredible. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to not be able to figure out your origins. I mean, that, that, I mean, it's like academically, yes, I know that's what it was like, but then I think about myself and it would be like, you know, it's easy for me to say Slovak Hungarian is where my family comes from, right? Slovakia. Well, yes. Yeah, but, exactly. But it's, it, it's just, yeah. I mean, it, it is just, you know, I, I'm curious in the process of writing the book, did that change how you felt about yourself either as a writer or as a man or a, as a black man? I wanted to, yes, uh, I wanted to be able to be in a position, uh, even though I, it's on a small scale, but I want to be a writer to be able to tell stories about my experience. And one of the themes or a theme that I have for both books, and you know this very well in terms of writing as a novelist, you have to have story structure. And one of the structures for my book and which I build stories around is the hero's journey. And so, and also as recovered, the hero is a young 17 year old black man, my great, great grandfather, who was born according to a person with whom I talked. And this is one of the things that was so exciting to me at the time is now that she's since passed, because this was in the late 90s when I talked to this person about uh, John Davis, the, the protagonist, and what he had to overcome and to want to live a bigger life. Now, most of the book is fiction, of course, but just talk. And that's the, that's the great thing about being a novelist or a writer is that you have the license to invent certain things and bring your story uh, to life. So it was important to me to be able to tell my story about lost souls recovered and inspired by my great-great-grandfather so people can see how he lived in a slave cabin neighborhood and he was determined, it's a very complicated story, it's all in the book, but he was determined to get out of that uh, neighborhood. But what propelled him to get out of that uh, neighborhood was the so-called inciting incident. In this particular case, it's the altercation that he had with the mistress of the slave plantation owners, a uh, slave plantation who the slave plantation plantation owner had actually owned his uh, mother. So it was important to me to be able to, to tell that story as a black man, even though in my own small way, because maybe it will resonate with uh, people who can now read the book and understand, well, I never knew that about uh, this particular black man, because this story is not someone who lived an outsized life. It's not. You can find these people in, in everyday communities who are working hard and want to be a family person and improve themselves in the community. And I tell a story about how he worked so hard to do that. So that was important to me to be able to, to, to tell that story as a Black man and tell a story that's never been told like that before. Uh, you know, you you used the word important, and, and obviously at a very personal level, it was important to you. More broadly, why is it important for people to find a way to preserve their their family history. What can we learn about ourselves by learning about our own past, whether we're black, white, whatever? Mm -hmm. uh, in the black community and in a lot of communities in general, there is something called orchard. That, that is something that is just what you were told and that was passed down to you. But that's kind of, to me, that's kind of like playing the game of telephone. If you have 10 people playing telephone, eventually when it gets back and everyone is done, the story has changed. You don't know if it's apocryphal or not. So I, I think it's important that we, uh, in my case, as a novelist, as a writer, to write these things down so people can have an understanding as to what happened. And for instance, uh, in the book that I'm working on now, In the Belly of the Beast, I, I talk about, a lot of these things, but Belly of the Lost Souls Recovered is historical fiction, no doubt. Belly of the Beast is, I think, it's more like literary fiction with some thriller type uh, elements. And I want people to understand the importance of uh, finding a way to uh, just preserve history. And in that book, I make the comment that a history written 
and ink cannot be erased by a history written in blood. So in my case, I'm using blood and I wanted to try to show uh, what my ancestors had come through uh, following uh, through the Civil War following slavery because, you know, uh, Black people did not get full rights uh, at a minimum, at a minimum until the 1864 Civil Rights Act was passed and the year later, year later, 1860, 1965, I'm sorry, then the Voting Rights was passed. So you have 1964, the um, Civil Rights Act, and then 1965, the Voting Rights Act. And then officially, it's supposed to be the end of Jim Crow. But I, I want people to understand that prior to that, a lot of what the Black people had gone through was not written written down necessarily. And uh, I think that if it had been written down, maybe we have a, a better story. But I'm taking the little step that I can to explain to people, yes, it was written down, but this is likely what happened in the past. You know, there's, there's no way we can talk about... Um about writing down history, transcribing history, getting the facts right on history without talking about book banning, which is crazy, which is, you know, I'm sorry, both as as a writer in general and, you know, and and as a person, the idea of this wholesale book banning is just, um, it's so appalling. You know, that's that's my personal view, but it is appalling. Um, you know, sometimes they ban books because of the gender issues that they think are discussed or maybe are discussed. Sometimes, um, you know, often it has to do with the history of our company and our country in terms of how how we treated other races. Obviously, the black race in particular, because Certain people would prefer that we just forget all about the whole slave time. Um, looking at book banning broadly, what do you feel is the danger in this wholesale book banning without any legitimate reason for children in particular, you know, because they are the ones who are being limited what they can access and read and for our society as a whole where what are the dangers in in this that people might not understand right i it's a it's a for a lot of readers and, and a lot of bookstores and independent bookstores uh are up in arms rightfully so about what is going on with this book banning let me just say that um race you, we're talking about race as a people race is not a human reality race is a political reality what do i mean by that it was not until the 1600s or so when the landed gentry and the wealthy white establishment decided that they needed to invent this concept of race because uh, the they were up against a lot of proletariat uh, people, peasants, poor white people who were up in arms because of the crowd grass, um, excuse me, the gross and crass disparity of wealth and income. So what you do in that particular case is you get them on your side. How do you get the, the lower class white people on your side? How would the wealthy white people do that? Very simply, you create a race to the black race, as an example, and other races, and say that they are inferior to you, so they can. So all of the white people, the wealthy people, and the uh, impoverished uh, white people can then have a bogeyman or boogeyman to go after. Therefore, the black race. So that's well a established in terms of common, the, common en enemy. Yeah, common enemy, sense. and that's how you uh, come up with the race. So I do believe that's true. That race. Prior to that. No one said black or white or anything like that. We were all the human race. So, so definitely race is a political reality. So that ties into this whole book ban thing. Why all of a sudden is this being coming up again within the past two to three years? It's a result of a political reality to be able to score points and to gain votes. So uh, this is all by... Uh, legislation, whether it's at the state level, whether it's at the uh, city level, oftentimes the municipal level, you have people like in uh, school boards are trying to ban 
uh, books because it's all trying to curry favor with a segment of a population whom they think would want to uh, have books banned. So no, I'm not in favor of book bans for a number of reasons, but one, we, what we have to be careful about is if you wanna keep your child away from the ugly history that we've had, then how are they gonna understand, how are they gonna grow uh, by you trying to keep something away from them. Eventually they will find out. This is like any, you tell a child not to do something and keep it away, they're gonna find out and they're gonna be behind academically if they don't understand fully what has happened uh, in our past. Now I understand that certain levels, a great levels, third, uh, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but as you get into middle school and high school, certainly these children, these, their children, but certainly under 18, but they're quite capable of understanding what has happened in the past. So. When you see books like To Killing Mockingbird, uh, Ban, or The Grapes of Wrath, or The Catcher in the Rye, any of those books banned, I understand to some extent that you may have the N-word or some racism taught uh, that's injected in that. But the reason that I, I'm against that is because as a writer, we want to know how these classics developed. What were these writers thinking in terms of how their story structured? Why was this important? To them, so you're just going to keep the classics away from our children, from the from that understanding. You don't have to agree with what they said, but society at large, at one point, made a decision that these were classics. All of a sudden, they're not classics. You're just going to ban them. So that's a political reality that we have to deal with. And if we're being honest about it, we should acknowledge that it's, a, it's politics and it's pure politics, and nothing else. So uh, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of politicians are looking towards banning books when it had not done that before. And like I said, it will hurt children in the end because they're being kept away from the things that we were. I was taught as a child, which I read as a student, not to say well, I was a child then, but let kids be kids. And, and if you're a parent, then it's up to you to make sure that you can talk to your child about any concerns that you have. So if you have a child and, and a child says, uh, goes to mom and dad and says, I don't understand this word. Or why is this word used? And it's up to you to educate them. Don't be, be afraid of the book. Take uh, Tackle it head on. Don't be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. That's my view on that. Have you run into any problems with your book being banned anywhere that you know? No. <laughs> no <laughs> Not I, yet. <laughs> no, I would take that as a, I would actually take that as a badge of honor if someone uh, read my book. Now, I will tell you, I will say this though that my book does not, even though it has some very tense moments in it, several uh, tense moments and the tension rises and the author, excuse me, the publisher that I used, a, a hybrid publisher, and I wanted to do this. Uh, and she said, the company said, no, they would not allow it. It's using the N word. And so I, I did not use that word because they would not publish my book. I will say I read uh, recently, I posted a review, could read to somewhere, Amazon maybe, All the Sinners Bleed by S.A. Cosby, an excellent book. And he's a big name, and he has uh, written that book, and among others, All the Sinners Bleed, and the N-word is in that book. But he uses it so eloquently to the extent that he's talking about what other, peoples are call other people are calling a Black person. And he's talking about specifically, it takes place in a small town in Sharon County, which is a fictional town, and it's a small rural town where you still have people marching down the street, sense of the Confederacy, I think is what he calls them, and, and they're starting trouble. And so obviously they're going to throw around the, the N-word. So it makes sense to fully understand what he's saying for them to be able to use that word against Blacks so you can have a full context of the hatred that they have for people who are not like them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it's interesting because I, I follow a lot of authors on social media and Ann Patchett, who I'm sure you know, you know, yes. massive mm -hmm. author, has her bookstore and everything. Um, I think two of her books were banned. So she oh took to social media and she's basically saying, like you said, badge of honor. Yay, my books have been banned. And right. you know, this is, <laughs> I mean, at, at this point, it's it's almost, yeah, it's it's kind of like if your book's been banned, that must mean you did something right. Right. Yeah. That these people are objecting sure. to. So it is um, yeah, it's it's really it's it's sad. And uh I hope it uh I hope it does not continue. I hope a lot of these people are are shut down because it's it's hurting our children. How how are they going to 
learn and evolve and understand if they are restricted from learning about the past, whether it is well, uh, their family's past or the past of their best friend who happens to be of a different color or a different nationality or whatever. A lot of what prompts, in my view, uh, book banning is shame and guilt. So if you have a, a book that's banned and you and few are a white person as an example, and you don't like the fact that there's some racism in there because you are trying to protect your own heart, your own soul from the truth because it hurts. And we as a people don't want to hurt. We want the easy way out. And so the, the easy way out is to protect just keep yourself from that, which you can't really do that as an adult, but you try to protect your child from that, but you really can't do that because the child's going to find out. The worst thing that you want to happen is uh, as the child gets older, the child's going to go back and say, mom, dad, why didn't you, why'd you keep this book away from me? It wasn't so harmful, but it's political. It's a political thing, pure and simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. Well, let's shift gears a little bit um, sure. and, and talk about your creative process. Cause this is, this is always something I love to talk to other authors about, you know, the, the question of, you know, how did you do it? Right. Because we're all struggling through as we're writing. It's not, it's not as easy as people think as, as non-writers think that, well, you know, give me a, give me a couple hours once a week and I can write a book too. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I noticed when I read or when I listened to some of your interviews, you had put the project on pause for 10 years after it was written and edited, what what was the reason for that? Yeah, it uh, <laughs> was on the wayside for a number of years. And when I started the book many, many years ago, before it was actually published, it came out in October of 22, so a little more than a year ago it came out. But I sat on it for a, a number of reasons. One, uh, it was edited to some extent, but I was not happy with it because I did, I was, I don't didn't feel as though I dedicated enough time to actually writing the book the way that it should be written. And I found it to be stilted and I wasn't happy with the way that it flowed. So I continued to read more and more craft books, John Truby's book and just a whole bunch of other uh, books about story structure. But even if I, when I started rewriting the book, going through multiple drafts is just that I, uh, didn't have confidence in writing creatively. Creatively, I still lack that confidence about what someone wants to read my book, and more importantly, could even have the book published. But as self-publishing became easier, and also as more hybrid publishers came online, I said, "Well, this is the time. This is the time for me to do it. I'm, I'm sick of sitting on it." People told me it's a great story, and you need to get it out in the world. So I said, I'm, "Okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to." push it out there in the world. So that confidence came from me just thinking about it, praying about it, and, and thinking that I, and knowing that I can get this book done, it's in with, it's in me. And uh, after 10 years or so, uh, and there were other things, intervening things in my life that happened, but I, I said, this is the time to make it happen. And once I hit the go button again, a reset button, whatever you want to say, whatever metaphor is applicable here, I made it happen and eventually uh, got, it got it published, but it took a while because I wasn't happy with the way that I had written the book. And that's true with a lot of authors. Uh, just, go on, just go on TikTok or Instagram and people talking about why they're unhappy with their book. And what do they say? I don't know. I'm going to perhaps uh, mangle this, but they say so many people have a novel in their head and think about it. So if you take the funnel approach, the big approach, so so many people, how many people are thinking about writing a novel? Then you work your way down to the novel. How many people actually put pen to paper? Okay, as you go further down the novel, then how many people actually uh, finish the novel? Okay, now you can finish a novel, it's gonna be garbage as they say, most authors will say, but at least it's a finished draft, you have something done. Then how many people stick with it and edit it? Okay, then how many people actually get it published? So by the time you get it published, you're probably down to, I don't know, two, 3%, then how many, uh, even less than that, um, it depends on whether you're gonna go uh, self-published or traditionally published, but so yeah, I. You have to, and I realized that I got to just get this done and, and keep editing and editing and editing. What do they say? They say that writing the, uh, write without fear and edit without mercy. 
And I began to understand what the importance of that is because you just got to edit, edit, edit it. And uh, so that's why it took me a long time <laughs> to finally push this book out into the public. And, and I think that is so much better than the people who feel like, okay, I did the first draft. I'll do maybe one or two other drafts. It's done. I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want it to, I don't want to pay for professional editing or I don't want input from, from any beta readers or basically I don't want anybody to, to look at my book, read my book and tell me anything other than, oh my God, it's perfect. Don't <laughs> I mean, don't we yep. wish, you know, and, right. and, it, and it's funny because, um, you know, for years I, I always, I always wrote fiction. I always wrote short stories. Never thought about having any of them published. Never occurred to me. Okay, I mean, I didn't know any authors. That that was, I didn't. I'm not even sure if I believed that they believe that they were real. Right? It was like you you read you read stories as a child, and the characters in the story are real to you. I never cared yes. who wrote it. It was like you know, I just wish I knew those characters. I wish they lived next door. But um, but I had for years worked in in magazines, worked in the magazine industry, worked for newspapers, and you know would just have my pieces sometimes nicely, sometimes not so nicely torn to shreds by the editor saying, you know, you ramble on too long here, or get to the point there, right. or whatever. Of course. So when it came time for me to really start thinking about the process of writing something and then moving to the next level and submitting it somewhere, it's like, well, of course they're going to send it back, you know, redlined or whatever. And, you know, and I was, I was thrilled if it came back and it didn't have a whole bunch. Right. I mean, it was like, <laughs> right. thank yeah. God I can, I, I can fix this yeah. paragraph. You know, the last thing you want to hear is the entire piece is garbage thrown away. But, um, but yeah, it is, it is that um, commitment to the story that I think carries us through commitment to, to do the best we can it's never perfect. Whatever we write never gets to the vision we had in our head. We do the best we can. We do the best we can. We hire people to tell us how to improve it. Um, but it is, it is um, I, I always feel like we owe it to the reader to do the best we can. We owe it to the characters to tell their, whether we're writing fiction or nonfiction, we owe it to the characters to tell their story to the best of our ability. And sometimes you can do it in a few months of concentrated effort. Sometimes it needs to sit for a while, like, like you're making bread, right? It needs to sit for a while and it needs to right. raise and then come back, punch that baby back down and start again. But, and, and I think what separates real writers from wannabe writers is our willingness to go back into it, to start again, to revise. Right. If I can add something to that, you mentioned what we owe to the reader. You're absolutely right. For what I found is that writing fiction, we're basically uh, making a promise or contract with the reader. And that promise or contract is that you're going to write an entertaining book because fiction is about the endless of possibilities. And uh, as long as something's possible that where it may not be possible in real life, we want to escape as a reader. We want to escape and read something that is a little bit more different than uh, real life because the way that we if, imagine writing a book just about the conversations that we had every day and what goes in our lives every day, it would be boring. So we write something to uh, give people something to escape just for a period of time, whether it's a, uh, not, uh, what they're saying, put down a book or a book, we want the uh, reader to be entertained. But what I have found in writing the second book, and, and which has made it easier for me, is trying to master, and I've gotten better at it, I think, is the story structure. And once a writer understands the story structure, it becomes easier. And science tells us, when I say science tells us, that's my word my own work because 
why are so many people writing books like Save the Cat and Truly's books and all these other books about story structure? Because they're saying that, and the publishers rely on that. So what I have done in story structure is understand the placement in terms of the beats. So I mentioned earlier, two ways I look at it. One, you have the exposition of the book, uh, what things that lead up to the rising action where the tension begins to build. Then, and that can take maybe like 30, 40, 50% of the book or 60% or even 70%. Then you reach that climax. The climax is where it's uh, a life-changing decision. So it's going to be made. And from there, you have the falling action where things begin to conclude. The, uh, then you have the um, conclusion. Or you can look at it as I mentioned earlier, the inciting incident. And Lasso's recovered the inciting incident as he did something that causes him to need to flee Richmond, Virginia to go south. So you have the inciting uh, incident. Then you have the primary challenge, uh, for instance. Then you have the, the crisis and uh, the midlife crisis and the climax and resolution, all of that. So if you understand the story structure, then uh, where to place it, then you are halfway home. Doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. In fact, it often is not perfect, but it, at least it tells you that you've written a book where if you have a professional look at it, they will tell you that you as a writer understands what publishers are looking for, what the readers are looking for. So even if you are self-published a book or whether you're traditionally published, if you have that story structure in place, then the reader on average will understand the purpose of that book because they have been trained to look for those story structure ideas. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. It, you know, we we do that instinctively when we're telling somebody what happened to us in a, you know, in the grocery store or whatever. Right. And, you know, sometimes sometimes in the course of writing the book, you know, those first couple drafts, we we might not quite follow that structure. And then and then it's like we start refining it. We're refining yeah. it until until we can see it, whether we're plotters or pantsers. But ultimately, right. we start seeing it and get a sense of, okay, that's the turning point. That's that's the climax. That's the this is when it is right. And um, yes. yeah, and and I think you know a lot of times that is where a good editor can help us because sometimes we we kind of miss it a little bit, and and the editor will say, you know, hey, you you've got to. You got to get you, you got to get to the point here. You're dragging this out too long, you know, or yeah. you really haven't set it up well. So when the big climax comes, people are like, "What? You know, where where did that come?" Exactly. From? Yeah. Yeah. We, one we, of the things that I've learned. No, go ahead. One of the things I've seen. No, yes, thank you. I'm just gonna say one of the things I've seen so often is that people want to edit their own books or certainly don't want to pay the money for a professional editor to do it. You can do whatever you want. You want to have a self-published book, it's fine. But if it doesn't sell, you have yourself to blame because uh, we need professional editors to see what we cannot see. They are professional for a reason because they've been doing it for a while. They understand things that we don't understand. They may not have written a book. You don't have to necessarily be an author, but they read hundreds if not thousands of books and they see it over and over again they attend conferences about what readers expect so i think everyone owes it to himself to at least get a, a professional editor and within that comes where you want to have a developmental editor a line edit a copy edit and so if you skimp on having your book professionally edited you're going to get what you pay for which is nothing you pay nothing expect nothing yeah more yeah. or less no, you're absolutely right. And, and I think, again, it comes back too often to a, an ego thing where, you know, it's kind of like, don't tell me what's wrong with my child, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, kind of, you know, do, do you just want your name on a book cover or do you want to write a good book? You know, is this about ego or is this about communication? So it's, um, yeah, um, you know, and and, and I, I find this uh interesting you know with, with you being a lawyer okay i mean so many i don't know why people think that authors this is all we do we are authors we live off of our book royalties yeah <laughs> we wish um so <laughs> you know uh, how do you blend your writing life with your other career as a lawyer with your personal life how do you, how do you find the time to write what is what is your method 
Well, like many writers, and obviously the vast, vast majority of writers and authors, we have day jobs. And, and that, what does that mean? We have day jobs because we have not reached the point where we can uh, live off of our income from a royalties from writing a book. And very few people can do that. So if you have, I don't know, a million writers, I don't know what percentage of that would be that the number of people who live off of their royalties, but it's uh, very small. So obviously I would love to be able to do that, but I started late in terms of trying to uh, write a book, but I'm glad I did because uh, I've been practicing law for over 30 years now. So what I do in terms of write, writing books, I'm writing my second book, is that I work my day job, but then you have to be disciplined uh, and consistent. I don't write every day, but that doesn't mean I'm not thinking about it. Most days I do. Uh, sometimes when I'm in bed or just have idle time, I think about a plot. I think about uh, how I can make this uh, story better. So, so I'm thinking about it. I'm writing about it. So just a matter of being disciplined and consistent and setting time aside. Sometimes you have to give up certain things that you want to do and, and uh make it work because if you really want to be a writer, then you're going to make it work. You're going to find a way to do it. It's as simple as that. That is so true. I mean, it comes down to the commitment level and, you know, you, you got to give up something to get something, right? It, it just yes. what it is. What is the worst advice anyone um, has given you about being a writer? Well, I, I think the answer to that is, I'm not sure if it's advice, it's just a negative statement that why would you want to be a writer when you cannot make any money and that ties into what i said previously about uh, having a day job well to me i cannot tell you how much joy brings me to write a story i'm finding a lot of joy in, in the book i'm writing on now so uh the first book i'm not going to retire certainly off of any royalties from losses recovered by any means uh, but it was a joy to write and it's a joy for me to, to go to book clubs and go to libraries and to uh, talk about the book. So uh, I've having come close to earning back the money I've spent on the book, because even with traditional, traditional, traditionally published authors, there's a great deal of marketing that that author has to do himself or herself. So I spent a lot of money. Uh, was, I spent money going out uh, marketing my book and so it's, it's my money it's not the publisher's money just to get my name out there so uh, maybe i'll hit pay dirt one day i don't know but it doesn't matter in the end as long as i satisfy that i wrote a good story and i can get good professional reviews which is a very important flashpoint i like to point out is the mark of your book is having people in the industry tell you that you've written a good story. Now you may not win, you may or may not win an award. Awards, that's great, I, I would love that. But if you can get a great book review, then that tells the world that you've written a good book. For instance, in Lost Souls Recovered, it was reviewed by Kirkus, and they said that it was an expertly told tale of love, loss, and second chances. And so once I got that review from Kirkus, which is up there with Publishers Weekly and some of the book riot, uh, whatever, that once you get that positive review, then the libraries will be open to stocking and shelving your book. So I was happy uh, that I was able to get that done. So it's not so much the the money that I won't make any money. I haven't made much money, a few, few dollars, a few coins here and there, a little bit more than that, but I think you understand what I'm saying. It's just that uh, the joy of writing a book and having a professional colleague, a reviewer, tell you that they like your work. So when you say that, when you mentioned earlier, Nancy, that, uh, some of these people who are writers will say they want a reviewer to tell them how great their work is or a beta reader. No, that's not the standard. The standard is to have someone who knows what they're talking about. Beta readers are great. I have my book out right now to a bunch of beta readers. They are fantastic because uh, they are often right. doesn't mean you have to take their advice, but maybe you can adjust it. But they are often right. But having someone professionally review it, it's scary. It, it's a scary thing for someone like me oh gosh what do i do if uh, i remember i give you a quick story here when i had it out to uh, kirkus reviews and i was nervous um i had to do a lot of this myself i don't know what they were going to say because they can ding you and you pay all this money and then you get a ding and so i got the review and one of the things 
I had this conversation with the person on the phone, this nice lady on the phone. He said that uh, with your review, we can either publish it or not publish it. Now, I had made up my mind, if it's going to be a terrible review, obviously, I didn't want that to go out there. Thankfully, it was the review that I mentioned, just mentioned, expertly, expertly told tale of Love, Loss, and Second Chances. They published that. And what a great thing to have it on the cover of your book. So, yeah, have professionals review it. It's going to, again, I lost money. I think it's what, four or $500. I don't know what it was, but it came out of my pocket, but it was worth it. Absolutely. Worth it. Absolutely. Um, I always like to close the show with this question because everybody gives me a slightly different answer. So I'm, I, I like asking it. How do you define success as a writer? What makes you feel successful as a writer? Oh, yeah, I kind of touched on that uh, here and there throughout some of my answers given already. What makes, what is successful to me? Writing the story with before publication is the destiny, is the journey for me. It's the fact that I'm learning by reading the crap about the craft and talking to other people who know a lot more than I about book writing. And so it's a journey more so than the destination. But the destination has important, is important because I learned that if people want to read my book, that's an honor that any author should take. Even if they gave me a one-star review or any author gets a one-star review, they've taken the time to purchase your book. And if you look at the reviews, they always say, well, I hate this book. I, uh, My heart... Uh, hard-earned money was lost, or if they go to the library, their time was lost. But somehow they've taken the time to either take a trip to the library, or download it, or purchase the book. So I'm grateful for that, even if for one-star reviews, and obviously we will higher reviews than that. But I felt a great deal of achievement or satisfaction is the better word, I suppose, is when I was invited to talk to different book clubs and to different libraries. And I've talked to a number of libraries, and I was fortunate to be a, a featured speaker and the Columbus Book Festival uh, last year was I was on a panel of others, uh, one on writers, traditionally published authors. Uh, and the panel was a historical fiction a panel. So I was uh, honored to have been able to participate in that. So success is the beginning, the middle and the end. And the end here with Lost Souls Recovered is that people want to read my book and ask to read it. And I've been asked to participate in book clubs and and talk at libraries and so it's a wonderful feeling to be able to have your book signed uh, for you to sign your book for an author to sign his or her book and give it to someone with a smile on your face and have the smile and say thank you uh one of the things i like to do is i'm a gardener and i love to um, give away watermelon and a lot of other things a lot of other fruits and vegetables and giving it away just to see the smile on their face it's it's means everything I don't get it. I, I give it away. I just, I don't ask for any money in return. Just want to give it away because I, I'm a people person uh, and I want people to uh, feel a source of a uh, sense of gratitude for what I've done. And so I'm grateful that people take the time to read my book. Well, I, I've really enjoyed having you on the show, Eric. And um, I, I think people will, will certainly want to read your book after learning, you know, the backstory about it and, and, you know, all, all the information that you shared. And I wish you continued success with your writing, especially with the one that you're working on now. Thank you. Well, thanks again for being part of the show. And thanks to everyone who joined us here at Living the Writing Life.